Welcome to the Faith and Grief Podcast, where we explore the intersection of faith and grief. I'm your host, Shelley Craig, Program Director at Faith and Grief. We're a nonprofit that provides grief support programs in person and online through support gatherings, grief workshops, and retreats. Find out more about our programs and this podcast at faithandgrief.org. We hope the stories and interviews you hear provide some comfort and hope on your grief journey. On today's episode, we're joined by Rabbi Steve Letter. His book, The Beauty of Remains, is a beautiful love letter to his father, as well as some true knowledge around how to do grief, end of life, what life is like as a rabbi who's working with thousands, has worked with thousands of people who've lost loved ones. But he also describes in intimate detail how different his perspective changed after the death of his father four years ago. We're thrilled to have him join us. And uh, the beauty of what remains was our summer reading list book choice. If you didn't get to read it, please go find it on Amazon or IndieBound. When I first read your book, I knew I was prepared for um, some really good, rich ideas and thoughts because you're definitely a thinker. And what I was surprised by was I didn't expect to hear a bunch of love stories, love letters to your dad. What brought on that thought as you were developing this book? Well, you know, there's this old Yiddish expression that a half truth is a whole lie. Hmm. And for me to only have written a field guide to grief and loss and mourning would have been a half truth Mm. because the book, let me, let me give you the backstory of the book. If that's okay. I think that will answer your question. Uh, Five years ago on what's what Jews call Kol Nidre, which is the eve of Yom Kippur, which is the holiest day of the year for Jews. And for rabbis, it's kind of like the Super Bowl of services. Yeah. It's the big sermon of the year. I decided, and so this was 35 years ago, and it was my 30th anniversary of being on that pulpit. So I decided to give a, a sermon about the things death had come to teach me about life after having experienced so much death up close over 30 years right. with, with literally no hyperbole here, over a thousand families during that time. So I, I did what's called a list sermon. And I talked about 10 different things that death had come to teach me about life. And then Shelly, one year later to the day, we buried my father after a 10 year journey through Alzheimer's and I realized in that experience as Steve Leader, the son, mm-hmm. how much Steve Leader, the rabbi, had gotten wrong the year before in that sermon about death and life. And the book, in a way, was my apology, mm. my desire to set the record straight about and to be transparent and straight up about what I thought I knew from experiencing so much death vicariously and how wrong it was 
when I was the son and not the rabbi. And, and so I could not have told that story without talking about my relationship with my father in life because it so deeply informs my relationship with my father in death. And we do have a relationship, an ongoing, deep, meaningful, sometimes heartbreaking, sometimes hilarious relationship in death. I, I'm so glad you said that because so we talked earlier when we first started that we get really um, involved with the idea that there's a straight line from here to there and we'll finish. Yes. Yes. And I think so many times people think, you know, my loved one's gone, they've died. What now? Yeah. And my personal thing is, as I still have relationships, I still talk, I have two dear grandmothers who died many years ago. I still talk to them all the time. Oh, I, I, <laughs> in some ways, my relationship is deeper now. Yeah. And I have greater appreciation for certain things in relief. Yes. Like a negative. Yeah. Because they're gone in a way, they're more present. Right? Yeah. And and so um that's why I called the book The Beauty of What Remains, right? That sometimes things are more beautiful in relief than than in three dimensions. And you know, this this idea that grief is linear is one of the things I had wrong as a rabbi. And and mm -hmm. by the way. I don't think it's just that I had it wrong. I, I don't know how old you are. I'm 61 years old. Okay. So my generation was the first to be raised under the, the tutelage of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross right. when it comes to death and dying and grief. And what did she talk about? Stages and stages. In, now her work was more nuanced than that, but certainly on the surface, she talked about stages and stages imply that loss and surviving loss is a linear process. Right. First, you feel stage one, then stage two, then stage three, then stage four, then stage five, and then you're done. Right. Right. Yep. And so I actually say in the book, anyone who thinks the shortest distance between two points is a straight line doesn't understand grief. No. I, I learned, I learned that grief is much more like waves. Yeah. And if I can just riff on that for a moment. Yeah. I, I love the, the wave metaphor because I think so many times that people in our groups, they'll come and they'll say, I just feel like I'm stuck in denial. And because they've heard the five stages and they're, and they're yeah. like, that must be where yeah. I am. You know, like maybe yeah. that's where I am. And yes, they are stuck potentially, but it, it's. Well, I don't even think there's a stuck. I yeah, think yeah. we sometimes have to stand still to go forward. Yeah. I, and I think. I think there's a difference between being lost and wandering. They're not yeah. the same thing. They aren't. You know, wandering is not lost. It's a journey. And uh, so the wave metaphor works much better for me because grief, at least in my case, look, we're only experts on our own grief. Right. So for, in my case, the waves came very close together and very aggressively at first. And they do grow further apart. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you get days, weeks, months, years even of beautiful calm seas. And then your back is turned and suddenly this rogue wave of grief rises up and just crashes down on you. Yeah. 
I see this in grandparents' eyes at weddings, you know, 10 years after they lost their spouse and they're at their granddaughter's wedding and they fall apart. Even though they're remarried and they, you know, and they're dancing afterwards, right. they fall apart. So, our, so, and if we can extend this wave metaphor, another thing that I learned that has actually made my life better, and I thank my father for this in terms of, I shouldn't say thank him, I, I, I'm, I'm thankful for the grieving process because it taught me this. Mm. So the old Steve leader, my default setting was, if there was a wave coming at me, a wave of any kind, a wave of anxiety, a wave of hard work, you know, um, whatever it was, my default setting was, okay, I'm going to plant my feet here in the ground. I'm going <laughs> to stick my chest out and I'm going to, I'm going to hold my ground because I am more powerful than any wave. And we all know what can happen to a person whose default setting is I'm always going to stand my ground, no matter what the wave we sooner or later, we end up, and this is what happened to me when my dad died, we end up thrown upside down and gasping for air and smashed against the rocks. Mm -hmm. And what grief taught me and loss taught me is there's another way to, to deal with waves, a better way for me, which is to lie down, let it wash over me and just float with it yeah. until I can stand up again. And the other thing I learned is that while I'm floating, if I reach my hand out, very often there's somebody there to take my hand and help lift me from that sorrow. And for me, that was a big change in my life. I'll give you a, a very concrete example of how sure. it changed my work as a rabbi. The hardest thing I ever have to do is help parents bury a child. Mm. There's, there's really nothing that sucks the marrow out of my bones like that. And God only knows how much worse it is for those parents. I, before my father died, I would have sat down with you in the chapel before the service. And I would have said, Shelly, the most honest and helpful thing I can say to you right now is it won't always hurt so much. I don't say that anymore. Now I would say to you, Shelly, the most honest and helpful thing I can say to you is it won't always hurt so often. And that's and the truth, it's right? The, truth. It's so the first is a lie. Yeah. It hurts just as much when you feel it. Thank you. But but it does hurt less often yeah. as we as we reemerge and life reasserts itself. And so this was this and a couple of other real fundamental shifts in my heart, soul, and thinking were, were behind the reason to get to your original question, why I had to talk about my relationship with my dad and, mm -hmm. and the grief, not just the how-tos, right? But, but really get down into the basement of it all. And, uh, and that's why I tried this honestly very difficult thing as a writer which was to weave together a pragmatic field guide. What do you say? What do you not say? What do you do? What do you not do? When do you do it? How do you do it? Why do we do it? To weave that pragmatism along with and into 
this very personal memoir where I'm exploring the journey from rabbi to son. Yeah. Well, what I loved about it, and this is, this is one of my, uh, if I'm uh, prejudiced about certain things, it's this. When someone gives me instructions on how to do something, if I don't know that they've done it themselves and they've been there and they've, they've, they've lost the little nut or whatever it was from the instructions from the Ikea or, yeah. <laughs> or in the case of grief, I, I was so glad you told about your dad's and your relationship. Yeah, because, which was not perfect, as you know. Yeah, yeah. And it, whose is? Whose is? Yes, you know, like, that's, that's right. And that's why I think, you know, it also goes to my thinking just about life as a writer and as a teacher. I think the more particular we are, the more universal we are. Yeah. <laughs> right? The more... If you think about it in almost biological terms, the more you you drill down to the tiniest of particles, the yeah. a cork, an atom, you're looking at what is most particular, but also what's most universal mm -hmm. to all of matter, right? right? And I think it's the same with our stories. Yeah. Um, be, because love is love and loss is loss and joy is joy if you tell the truth of it, if you really get to the truth of it. So I, yes, I talk about my deeply flawed father, my frightening father, my um, ignorant in some ways father, my brilliant, hilarious father, uh, you know, my demanding father, my unenlightened father, um, and, and the ways in which that has informed my life and my grief. And you know, death is a very powerful teacher. Yeah. It, it may be, in my view, honestly, it sounds like an overstatement, but I actually believe death is the only teacher. In other words, without it, without it, I think we'd, we would all be something other than human. Yeah, I agree. I think right? Imagine a deathless life. What would that be? And, and how would you find value in it? Yeah, there wouldn't be any. There, no, there'd be no ambition. Nobody would have families. Nobody no. would change anything, right? We would be no different than, a, I don't know, a leaf on a tree, Yeah. right? Uh, or whatever, I mean, which obviously are not immortal, but we would have about the same level of ambition or purpose. And, and I think that, you know, Kafka said the meaning of life is that it ends. <laughs> it's, it's true. It kind of is. It's really it really true. is true. Um, yeah. And so we we don't get we, it's impossible to have a valuable, meaningful life without death. And it's amazing to me what it takes to realize that. Like I'll, yeah. I'll tell you from my my side of this. You would think a rabbi who was at the time my dad died, I was 57 years old. You would think a 57-year-old rabbi who had officiated at a thousand funerals and stood with a thousand families looking at the bodies of their loved ones in caskets, you would think I would have realized a thing or two about my own life and death. But the truth is, I mean, to be really honest about it, yes, I stood next to a thousand families watching them look at their loved one in the casket. But to be honest with you, Shelley, like 
it didn't really affect me that much. I could have eaten a sandwich. I, I, I was fine. Yeah. But then, then, and, and to, to really understand this, you have to realize that my father and I look almost identical physically. <laughs> you mentioned that in the book, and I think that's yeah. awesome. Like, like everyone's it, like, yeah, you're dear, your dad's son. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. And, and if you saw a picture of my dad at 61 mm -hmm. and a picture of me today, you literally could not tell the difference. And so we were at the synagogue before the service. And the young rabbi comes in to sit with us and talk with us and then lead us into the sanctuary to see my dad's body before the casket would be closed and we would begin the service. And I remember walking into the sanctuary thinking to myself, I know exactly how that young rabbi feels. Mm. I have no idea how I feel. I'm in this surreal fog. I'm yeah. numb. And then I this is still hard for me to talk about. Uh, then I approached my dad's casket. And I looked into it. And I thought to myself, wow. That's how I'm going to look when I'm dead. Mm. And my son is bending over my casket. And it was that moment, that was the moment I knew, I realized I was going to die. Mm. And that moment and realization changed my life for the better. And that's why I say that death is such a powerful and ennobling and difficult teacher. It is. And I think, like, for me, when I think about that, and thank you so much for sharing that, because I have a feeling a lot of people feel the same way when they're standing there next to their loved one. It makes them realize how close we are to death, but really what our lives are at that particular moment. Yes, and how valuable time is. Yes. So very very valuable and you start to uh, reevaluate yes. very quickly after uh, ho right. hopefully you do i mean that's that's the other thing hopefully you don't run Look, from I, it i don't think death gives anyone a new personality no but i do think it can reshuffle our priorities yes yes i'd agree with that too Ho hopefully it does i think for some yeah. folks sometimes that is just so overwhelming thinking about their own death and thinking about where they are in their lives, it is too overwhelming, but hopefully it does help. Re I think that's like waves. Yeah. I think that's like waves too. Yeah. I think there's a time in life to be in denial of death because mm -hmm. uh, we have to be in order to achieve and succeed right. and, and dream and push. But we also need to be aware of death. You know, one of the, I think the deepest structural component of the book and if I had to just say, what is it really exploring? Yeah. I would say it's exploring the duality of life and death. Yeah, I would agree. There are all these dualities. There's a duality to loss. There's a duality to death. There's a duality to memory, which I never understood. You know, 
clergy, I won't just say rabbis, all clergy, we have these like platitudes about memory that are just such bullshit, you know, <laughs> may, may her, me her memory be a blessing and you'll always have her in, her, in your memories and, you know, uh, the gift of memory. Okay, yes, memory is beautiful, right. but it also really, really hurts. Yeah. It's both, right? In the book, I say it's like it's like being caressed and spat on at the same time. <laughs> yeah. okay, that's memory. It, it, it is memory. That's the yeah. truth of it. Mm -hmm. And and I don't think you are a you can be, I could not be a mature, wise rather than smart human being without making peace with these dualities. I think under, making peace with these dualities, for me, has been the difference between being a smart rabbi and a smart human being, which I think, you know, thank goodness to my biology, I was always smart. You know, I was good at school. <laughs> I think that in making peace, understanding and embracing and learning to live with the dissonance of these dualities has changed me from smart to wise. Now I've got a lot to learn still, of course, but I think I have made that fundamental advance. You know, I think my equilibrium was punctuated by my father's death in a way that really helped me cross that threshold because mm -hmm. I really had to confront these dualities. I love my father, I hate my father. I love my father, I hate my father. I love to think about him. I hate to think about his loss. I wanna talk about my dad. I don't wanna talk about my dad at all, you know? Um, <laughs> so I, I think um, all of this is, is a lesson that can only be learned through loss. And I'm not yeah. telling you it's worth it. I, I'm, yeah. I'm not telling you it's <laughs> worth it, okay? But we don't have a choice about that. No, we don't. We only have a choice about how it informs our lives going forward, right? You know, I often say to people, if you have to go through hell, don't come out empty handed. And this, I'm just trying not to come out of this whole thing empty. I feel that way about the pandemic. Yeah. Let's yeah. not come out empty handed. And I hope we don't. Well, we could. We could. I mean, everybody, I, I, everybody I, could go back to their default settings. We could. I'm, I'm not planning on it, but it could happen. It will. I, I think I still, I already see it happening. Well, there like, has to some degree, it has to happen, right? Right. right. We, we all have to reemerge and we have to emerge from the cave. We all yeah, do. Yeah. Okay. But how do we emerge? Do we emerge with the same nonsense and materialism and hurry and scurry and worry, you know, uh, or do we emerge having become not having become wiser? as opposed to smarter, whatever that means. And, and I, I, I think in some ways we will, I know in some ways I will, and in some ways I won't. Um, I think that's just the human condition, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I'll tell you this, I'm not, uh, I'm not 
spending an hour on the freeway to go sit in a meeting with two people I could Zoom with instead. Right. Well, I'm it, not yeah, wearing exactly. neckties and <laughs> uncomfortable clothes, and I'm uh, I'm not taking hugging people for granted the way I used yeah. to. You know, I'm not I'm not taking the the being able to touch people. Yeah. Touch friends. It, it was so weird the first time I hugged someone, and that wasn't that long ago, other than my right. immediate household. Right, that's right. And, and we, we got much better at hugging each other, you know, because of it. Um, but one thing I said, you know, everyone, you know, has their opinions about wearing masks and stuff. I'm one that I wear my mask because I it's about me, but it's also more about you. Um, but one thing that wearing a mask made us do was look each other in the eye. And we didn't do very much of that before. Yeah. You know, we, even I, with those I, I who, who way, we saw every day. <laughs> I, I also think in a positive way, and I, I don't like wearing masks. I do it, obviously, yeah. but I don't like it because it fogs up my glasses. Oh, gosh. Right? I, so, have, I have learned new ways to wear my glasses <laughs> yeah, so that, you know, yeah. like you have the mask right. on and you're like, okay, wait, I have to adjust my glasses. Over so the nose clip, <laughs> over the nose clip, Yeah. <laughs> But I also think in a good way, it has diminished the um, the degree to which we focus on appearances mm. in a very good way. Yeah. Uh, and it's kind of a uniform in a way mm -hmm. that we all wear. Right. And it has therefore been somewhat of an equalizer. Uh, but, but you know, a lot of people, I didn't write this book to land in the middle of the worst pandemic in a hundred years, no, right? No, I, I didn't suspect but so, it but it did. But it did. <laughs> and so people often ask me, well, what, what does it have to teach us about life during the time of COVID? Mm. And I said, well, I think almost identical lessons to what death comes to teach us. COVID has taught us that our sense of invulnerability is false that we're all really vulnerable. That's scary. That yes. Very scary. I yes. Think, I think that's honestly where the base of some of the strife that we've had during this time comes from. That's right. I think that is the greatest um, effect of COVID is it woke us all up. It, it shook us by the shoulders and reminded us of our vulnerability, yeah. all of us. It reminded us that our destiny is really is in each other's hands, yeah. but also not. Yeah, at the same time. Right? That's yes. another one of those dualities. <laughs> yeah. Yes, and I think it also reminded us, as death does, that no matter how many times we say I love you, and no matter how many times we hold and are held by the people we love, it's never enough. Nope. It's never enough. And, and these are powerful and important lessons. And I, I think it's taught us that our, well, let me put it this way. I obviously spend a lot of time in cemeteries. Mm. And literally every time, you know how people are kind of weird about walking over the graves to get to right, where yeah. they go, you know, <laughs> right? Well, I am long past that. Yeah, yeah. Okay? It, I, I, I actually like graveyards. I find well, them very interesting, especially yeah. going to old sections 
where I can look and see whole families that may be together. Yes. And there's history there, which I find fascinating. Yes. And yes. there's a very important lesson in essentialism there, which I think COVID has taught us. And here's what I mean. We're all obviously unique individuals. We lead unique lives and we have unique deaths. However, there's an incredible uniformity to headstones in cemeteries. There are a few outliers, but 98% of them say, all say the same thing, despite the uniqueness of our lives. What do they say? Loving wife, mother, grandmother, friend. Yeah. Loving husband, father, grandfather, friend. When you have to distill a person's life down to 15 characters per line and four lines, that's a very um, instructive exercise in essentialism. What really matters? Mm -hmm. And what really matters is that small, tiny handful, and none of us have more than a tiny handful of people really matter and and then the question is well is that how we're spending our time and our energy and i think COVID has the answer during COVID has been actually yes mm -hmm. yes we are having dinner together we're yeah. cooking together <laughs> the, the, the kids back home our 32 year olds living with us again yeah. we love it right <laughs> um, you know so yeah now i know my neighbors yes you know yeah. i Yes, it's about the human relationships, the, the tiny few that we have. And I think, you know, just walk through the cemetery and that there's the lesson staring you right in the face. Yeah. That's yeah. what matters. Now live like, yeah. right? Live like that. Well, and I think the book, that's to me the underlying um, core of the book is to live like it. Yeah. Live, live up to that challenging relationship with your dad live up to um the ex you know not necessarily the expectations of others but what do you want them to say about you you know what yeah, do you and what, love, and you're, love. You're writing your own eulogy yeah, thank right? you you are so i don't write people's eulogies they do they write it with their lives yeah i loved your albert Einstein quote that you pulled um about kind of like the two lives yeah living because you live as if as if everything is amazing or nothing is amazing yeah and it's so much better when everything's amazing. Yeah, um, even even the painful things. Even the painful things, because hopefully there is some kind of lesson. It may be bittersweet. It may not be, like you said, nobody really wants to grieve. Nobody wants to lose a loved one. No one wants to go through, no one signs up for this, but we are already destined for it. You know, we will all experience loss at some level. We yes. will all, you know, not have something we have now. And, and that's, right. that's hard to come to terms with. Yes. Um, and sometimes I think that's where our faith can help. Mm -hmm. Sometimes mm -hmm. it can hurt too. It's, you know, I'm, I'm no one to say that um, we don't sometimes say that, but as you were grieving and I, even during this time of the pandemic, how has your, what's your relationship been with God? How has that changed mm -hmm. or been similar? I, so I want to answer this on two levels. Keep in mind that it has been my responsibility to guide a congregation of 10,000 people mm -hmm. through, this, through this. Yeah. Right. 
small, small extra thing that you didn't really. Yeah. I said for clergy right now, um, you know, you are dealing with a huge melting Sunday all the time. And for some reason, people just decided it needed more cherries. You know, <laughs> like, yeah, the Sunday's yeah. been melting and we're trying to, to keep it all in the container still. And then, oh, wait, there just needs to be more. You yeah. Know? yeah. Yep. 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 What it caused in me is for me to fall, fall in love again and more deeply mm. with the wisdom of my tradition and the wisdom of the rabbinic sages more deeply because let's start with this notion um most of jewish tradition was formulated during a time when people had no reason not to believe that they were going to be killed by a fire a flood a plague a thug thank you uh, death was very right? close yeah always always like half, listen, 500 years ago, half of all children didn't live to be five years old. Well, it's really the okay. last 50 years where we've- I'm A little more, penicillin. Yeah, penicillin yeah. helped a lot. Yeah. But, you know, if you look at numbers, you know, yeah. where we yeah. got to the point where we made it clinical and separate and that, yes. that happened- Embalming. You know, embalming, all yeah, all embalming that Embalming didn't happen. Well, the Egyptians mummified, but embalming in America was because of the Civil so, War. Right. They had to transfer right. bodies, and That's that was right. the only way they could do it. Yeah. That's right. And so, you know, there is nothing that the sages didn't, there's nothing about the human condition <laughs> that the sages didn't think through very, very deeply. And I reimmersed myself in all of that and then shared it. I shared it with the congregation. Here is our ancestors' prescription for how to live during a time like this, mm -hmm. how to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, mm -hmm. right? And it was incredibly inspiring to me personally. And I think to those with whom I shared it. And the other thing I did was I kind of, uh, I, this is not a word, but de-Jewified it, <laughs> right? I, I, I universalized it. So sure. instead of saying the rabbis say, I would say the sages say whatever. Yeah. And I shared it as best I could on my various platforms. And um, I, I somewhat of a regular on the Today Show. All I did was I tried to share that with the wider mm. world to help them. And it does help. These, these people thought it through. And all I had to do was reconnect to all of that. And, and that really, really saved me. And I will say this too. Um, I, as I think I told you, I'm 61 years old. So I was, you know, 59 and a half when this whole thing started. Mm -hmm. I felt like I was at the right point in my career and my life mm. to be the captain of the ship. Like, I, like, give me the ball. Give me the wheel. I got it. I don't know I that I would have felt that way 10 years ago or 20 years ago, despite still having the title rabbi. Right. So right. I felt like this, this is my calling. The congregation needs this. And you know what? I, I feel prepared to deliver it. Now, 
that being said, I also had my own anxiety and panic attacks and, you know, depression, and I gained 10 pounds and I lost 10 pounds. I mean, I, I'm no different than any other human, but, but I did feel like I had the maturity. I had the ancient wisdom at my disposal. And frankly, to be, which is really important, the sense of humor to, to carry, to put the congregation on my back and, and move forward. And that's what I tried to do. Now, obviously, with a lot of help from a lot of really talented people. Um, so my relationship with God, my relationship with, with Jewish tradition, with my faith, with the wisdom of my faith, with the Bible, with the Psalms, with the book of Job. Yeah. Oh, Job. Let's. We'll talk about Job if you'd like. Because <laughs> I've, I've gone there to Job uh, a big yeah. time. Well, you know, I think yeah. with the sages. How could you not? How could you not? It, right? Right. It so is. for me, it's been a very rich experience yeah. to to lean more fully and, and, and securely on my faith during during COVID and during the death of my father. Yeah. And, and I I am always like, talking about Job. I think I've always gone back to Job over and over again when things don't go my way um, because, you know, they should. <laughs> so you know, like yeah, my Job plan, my plan should should definitely yeah. precede any other other's plan. Job is an important lesson in humility. Yeah, and to and remember. and an important lesson. You know, the book, the very first verse, Job was a blameless man. Mm -hmm. That no, you do not deserve this suffering. You are not being punished because of something you've done wrong. That isn't why suffering. Obviously, if you smoke three packs of cigarettes and you get lung cancer, yeah, yeah, there's a correlation. Yeah. But generally speaking, this pandemic, this suffering, these losses, these are what it means to be human. Mm -hmm. This, you don't want to suffer loss. Be an inanimate object. Be a rock. Yeah, it's it's that's the only way. You know, that, because for that to, to be human is yeah. to act upon nature, and if we are going to act upon nature, nature is definitionally going to act upon us yeah we all fall apart yeah. some of us more quickly some of us more slowly mm -hmm. we have some control over it but not all that much and and it doesn't mean you're a bad person you know i often say to people expecting being a good person to protect you from evil is like expecting the bull not to charge you because you're a vegetarian like, <laughs> right that's not how it works that's not how it works <laughs> You know, and and that God is not an answer is not a a, a wish granter. I no. mean, if God granted wishes, everybody's life would be different. Yeah, and if you've uh, seen uh, what was it Evan Almighty um, when he answers all the uh, the wishes, a calamity happens. So yeah, and you know. <laughs> and people often confuse wishing and praying. Yes, they're not the same. So Job is a good lesson in humility, a good lesson in, in the reality that bad things happen to good people. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, the most important lesson in Job is that why is the wrong question. Yes. Right? Why in, in California, I grew up in the Midwest in Minnesota, we call it, we call them dead end streets. Yes. Here in LA, they're called cul-de-sacs. Yes. <laughs> right? But in any case, why 
is a dead end? Why is a cul-de-sac where you just go around and around and around and around and you never leave? Because there is no why that a human being can discern. I mean, God, you know, when Job, when Job says, you know, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, yes. like, God, I'm, I'm a good person. Why me? Yes. Does God yes. defend himself? No. Mm -mm. What God says to Job is, are you big? I am. Mm -hmm. Do you keep the waves in the, in the shore? Do you make the sun rise? You know, did you fill Leviathan's nostrils with harpoons? I did. Try it. You know, and, and God says to Job, I make it rain where no man lives. Why does God say that? Because God is saying to Job, you are not the center of the universe. Yes. In fact, the universe has no center. I am it. And what does Job do? Job renounces his human judgment. Yeah. In the face of the mystery that is God. Yeah. Right. It, it is an, a, an act of humility and an acceptance and not passivity. Right. There's a difference. There yes. is, but acceptance. And the older I get, the more I realize we are really only human. We can only know and understand so much. And there are many whys we can never, ever answer. And so the question has to change. Thank the you. question has to become not why, but what, given that this happened, am I going to do with my life? How am I going to live with this and live because of this? And, and, and a lot of my work with people on, you know, what I, you read the book. So, you know, I call the couch in my office, the couch of tears, yes. which is from the Psalms. A lot of my work is helping people move from why to what and how. And, and, and when people, I know in our groups and stuff, they talk about being stuck. I always, I always ask them, you know, where, where, what questions do you have right now? And many times it's the why questions that come up. And why that's why they're stuck. Yeah. Why didn't I do this? Why didn't they do this? Why didn't this happen? Why, you yeah. know, there's a lot of whys. And yeah. um, I have uh, one of the folks who runs one of our writing workshops. Uh, she lost her son in a tragic uh, motorcycle accident. And she said, the day I stopped asking why and asking how am I going to continue was yes. when I finally said, okay. Because that's an act of faith in the future. It, well, it was. And she said it was in... I'm so glad you were talking about Job and the humility because there's a point where in your humility, you have to surrender. Yes. And even yes. in your metaphor with the waves, when you yes. surrender rather yes. than, you know, fight it with both hands and not to say that you can't do that because all your feelings are valid and though you're going to have to go through those. Yep. But there's a point where you have to say, you gotta lie down. Yeah. You gotta lie down. There's, this is, float. yeah, float with it. And yeah. it, it's, and it's hard because, oh my gosh, we are so wired for the why questions. I like, actually, I, I guess, I think we're wired that way by really bad theology. Yeah. Well, that could be too. Right. I, I don't think, I don't think the ancients were wired that way. I don't think it's in our DNA. I, I think the ancients were much better at, at embracing the reality of life and death. Mm. And um, 
and we've tried to put it in a neat package yeah you know with with stages and self-help books and and all of that and and i i think that you know for me in my own life i'll just put it with the way one 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 friend of mine put it to me he said you know i've given up all hope of a better past <laughs> That should, be a t- that should be a t-shirt. I think that should yeah. be a t-shirt. It's a really important, <laughs> it's a really important, uh, it's important to understand our past, mm-hmm. but we can't re-engineer the past. Understanding the past is valuable for our future. Yes. We can't, we can't undo it or change it. We can only learn something from it and, and change the future. You cannot change the past. We know that, but sometimes we continue to dwell in it. You know, to get biblical on you for a second. <laughs> I'm okay with that. So <laughs> Yeah. Well, you do live in Texas, so. Um. Well, yeah. Um, but I'm, <laughs> as I've lived here 30 years, and I, I still say I still feel like a foreigner. Um, yeah. Because, yeah, you know. I get it. I wasn't born here, so, you know. So think about the story of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot's wife. Mm. So God says, I'm going to destroy these wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Get out of there and don't look back. Yeah, the don't look back is important. Right. And Lot's wife looks back. And what happens? According to the Bible, obviously, we're talking about metaphor here. The Bible says she turned into a pillar of salt. So I have always understood that to mean that if we orient ourselves to the mistakes, the misery, the destruction of our past, we become bitter and paralyzed a pillar of salt. And that doesn't mean we shouldn't remember our loved ones and honor yeah. our pain, et cetera. But, but the why question is the, is trying to re-engineer the past. And, you know, I, there's another lesson in that, that I think this literally happened to me last night. My wife, Betsy and I had dinner with a couple of friends last night at their home. They're older than we are. Uh, they raised four kids, all of whom had, you know, real problems growing up as most kids do as i like to say about parenting it never ends right it, it, it does <laughs> it not ends. for those yeah, of you and who I don't would put know an yet expletive in there if i could <laughs> yeah right yes it there, never yeah. effing ends no okay? it, it doesn't and and just when you think of course i like it when they think you should be done parenting. Yeah. yeah right so they were talking about their kids and raising and he and this man said to me you know i was in analysis for years and asking and thinking about whether or not to what degree my parenting was at fault for my children's problems Mm. and the therapist said to him you know you were good enough if you were a c plus or a b minus you were good enough and the rest really is on the kid yeah right so you were good enough to, to plant them in the right soil and give them the chance. And some of this is really about your kids and not about you. Yeah. Right. Stop. Stop that. Why business? You were good enough. Now, if you were a D minus, yeah, it would be your fault, but you were good enough and good is good enough. You know, if you want to again, get biblical for a second, when God creates the world, everything is called good. Yeah. Right. It's not called perfect. It's not great. Thank you. Thank you. It's good. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, move forward. And, and, and 
you know, the other, the other sort of biblical metaphor I like to talk about a lot is this idea of the psalmist in the 23rd Psalm comparing death to a metaphor of a valley, the valley of the shadow of death. Mm -hmm. And if you, I think there are two very deep messages in that verse. The first, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, through, through. Yeah. we don't stay there forever. Mm -mm. We may wander for a while. And we may stop for a while, but somehow, somehow we emerge back into the light, mm -hmm. right? But even, even deeper than that, if you think about shadows, really think about a shadow, no matter how long or dark it is, it's actually proof of light. Yeah, because you can't you have a shadow. You cannot have a shadow without light. Yeah. It's total darkness. Right. So a shadow means the light is still shining, but it's obstructed. So I often say that grief is love obstructed. Yeah, it is. Right? It's, it's, a, it's love that doesn't know where to go sometimes. Right. Like, I mean, I, it's, it's obstructed by sadness yeah, and grief. Yeah, it is. Right? Yeah. But it's there. You wouldn't be sad if it wasn't there. Well, nobody grieves for someone they hated. No, I say that all the time. Like, <laughs> right? we don't grieve what we don't love. Like, right. like so, if you don't like I, something and love it, you're not really going to miss it. Right. You know? and, a, and a shadow, again, is proof. And I'll, I'll, I'll get a little geeky for a second. <laughs> the Hebrew word for evening, for darkness, is Erev. There's a, there's a word from the same root, which is mi'urav, which means to be commingled, mixed up. That, in other words, darkness is never completely dark. There's always some light mixed within it. Yeah. And, and then the, the, the uh, brightness begins to change, right? that time and, and spirituality and, and friendship and love begin to turn the dial mm -hmm. and, and, and the, the ratio of dark to light begins to change. And then sometimes the switch flips off and it's dark again. And this is this nonlinear thing, but, um, and there's no wrong way to do it. There's no wrong way to walk through that valley. There's no wrong timeline. No. And and uh, you don't have to walk it alone. You don't. And I think your uh, metaphor with the wave about reaching out and finding, you yes. know, whether it's a rock to hold on to, but hopefully it's somebody. Um, yeah. The, well, it, yes. And, you know, the Talmud says the prisoner cannot free himself. Yeah. Wow. Think about that. I know. Well, you have to reach out. And sometimes it takes the pain of death to, to force, certainly it did for me. It took the loss of my father to force me to reach out. Well, and pain, uh, I love the Richard Rohr quote, um, pain that's not transformed will be transmitted. And I love that because until, mm -hmm. until the, the pain is, recognized acknowledged and create some meaning and create some meaning sat with yes it will fester 
it will find, and, and usually that's, for some people that's internal, they'll take it and internalize that and, and, and torture themselves, or they may go out and torture yes. outside of themselves. Yes. It's one direction. Yes. I often say when people slam a door, they're not angry at the door. Oh gosh, right? no, no. <laughs> and they're so, just glad it's a door, you know, like yeah. they're, they're like, okay. I well, can... sometimes another person is the door you're slamming. Yeah. And, unfortunately. and that's the problem, right? right. But, um, yeah, we, there are things we can choose and things we can't, things we can control and things we can't. This all sounds simple, but you know, simple is not easy. No. Simple doesn't mean easy. It doesn't. It could, they're very different things. Because uh, we have a lot of complicated things. You know, our our phone in front of us is very complicated, very yeah. convenient. and um, and But that doesn't mean it's easy. Like it does easy right. stuff for it's us. It makes life easy. Yeah. Walking is simple, yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's not easy when it's through a valley of shadows. No. Right? Right. Floating is, is simple, but it's not easy when it's a wave of grief. No, not at all. Right? It might be easy when you're in your pool with your grandchildren, right? but it's not easy when it's grief. So, you know, I think, I don't think we should ever apologize. I actually strive in my writing for it to be simple, not simplistic, but simple. Simple. Well, I think that's what uh, I loved about the book um, because it, every line is, is highlighting. <laughs> you want to highlight it because, but you can feel that like it doesn't need to be complex to get right. across the point. Right. And to be rich with wisdom and knowledge. Like people think it, you need to be a rabbinical scholar to understand things. No, actually, <laughs> my father, if you read the book, I mean, my father is the scholar in the book. Yeah. And, and it's all of these very simple Yiddish folk sayings mm -hmm. that are the distillate of real genius. Yeah. You know? So I actually, my, my father is the rabbi in the book, and I'm the son. Yeah. I hear that often as I was reading. I said... I kept saying, I said, I think he really wants us to know how wise his dad was and how, and the thing with those Yiddish phrases is they're true. Yes. So, that's right. And that's why they, they, they're simple, right. but they're true. And how wise my father, how much wiser my father became in death. Yeah. Than I realized he was in life. Yeah. It, 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 those hopefully after our loved ones die and they have left their mark on us like he did you, we can recognize those things right? and get past sometimes, especially when it's a difficult relationship, get past that part and be, actually be able to see the beauty part. Um, or yeah, make peace with the, the yeah. fact that it's really not there. Yeah. You know, this is one of the things that uh, shocked me in reaction to the book. Mm. I expected what I'm about to tell you to resonate with a tiny percentage of readers. It turns out it's resonating with almost everyone. And that is the part of the book where I tell the truth about the death of someone with whom you have had a, a difficult relationship mm -hmm. So very often people will come to see me and they'll 
I'm making this up, but it's it's uh, emblematic of these conversations. They'll say to me, Steve, Rabbi, uh, I've had a terrible relationship with my mother my whole life. Uh, she's narcissistic. She's cold. She's withholding. She's manipulative. She's passive aggressive. And every time I'm with her, I end up feeling horrible about myself. So I really haven't had much of a relationship with her at all for the past 10 years. Like I text her on her birthday. That's about it. And I'm happier. But she's 90 years old. And, you know, she has uh, pancreatic cancer and they've given her three months to live. And I'm going to go back to the Midwest and visit her. And I really hope, you know, we're going to make peace because I, I'm going to feel so guilty when she dies for this past 10 years when I haven't had a relationship with her. Mm -hmm. And I say to this person, I think you're probably going to feel hugely relieved when she dies, not guilty. And they look at me as if like, yeah. am I, he's right, but doesn't that make me a terrible person? And, and my answer is no, that that's just the truth of it. That the truth of your relationship with a person in life is the truth of your relationship with that person in death. Death doesn't change anyone's personality. It doesn't change a relationship. Mm -mm. And so I thought, well, this is gonna help a tiny handful of people who have toxic relationships that they've ended in their lives and they're worried they're gonna feel guilty when the person dies. Right. Uh, guess, guess what percentage of us have had to, have, have had toxic relationships we've had to end and are worried about feeling guilty when the person dies? All of us. All of us. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and I was so glad you put that in the book because I think there is a feeling, and I know in our groups we hear it all the time. There's a, a definite thing about guilt. Guilt comes up on so many levels, but especially in those challenging relationships, whether they were reconnected or not. And and I think there's something when we when we hear that our loved one who we've struggled with a relationship, we feel like we need to go and make amends or. Get an, or get an answer, like we were talking about the yeah. whys. Like, I want them to admit at the end that they were wrong yeah. and I am right and they've treated yeah. me like crap. And it's not going to happen. Know, no, they're not. They're going to be the same people. That's right. You know, and Just um, more so. More so, and or, right. or potentially a diminished version of themselves. But it's going to be on you to just to, to yeah. work on that and let it go. Because, and be honest. And be honest, if, yeah. If you're relieved. Yeah. And, it, and, and, and I tell people, you're not going to be, I don't think you're going to be tortured. I think you're going to be relieved yeah. that it's finally really over. Yeah. And they look at me like, I, I guess I think that's true, but doesn't that make me a terrible person? Yeah. And the answer is no, no, no. It just makes you human. I mean, yeah. you're, it's a feeling. You, that had to, you had to cut that person out of your life. You yeah. had to, they were toxic. Yeah. It was not healthy. And you know, love comes in so many forms, and sometimes you have to to um, protect your own self love. To and be, your family, to be, yeah, doesn't mean you. Do, I that, that's I think sometimes when people get those feelings of relief, it's like, oh, maybe I didn't love them enough, or it's, you know, you still love them. 
You didn't like them. You don't like them. That's very different. That's right. Um, you know, because loving someone, you love people that you don't or, like. Or, by the way, yeah. there are also people you really don't love. Yeah. That you're like, mm. you just. You just don't. Not everyone loves their parents. By the way, let's get biblical again. Yeah. Why do you think the commandment is honor your father and mother and yeah. not love your father and mother? Right. Because you can't legislate love. You can't. You can be. You can legislate respect. Be respectful. Yes. Lead an honorable life. Right. But, but, but the commandment isn't to love. Because sometimes you really don't. And there's certain and times you really that you don't. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Well, what when it gets down to grief, and we talked about the the wave metaphor and sort of surrendering and finding a place of peace. Um, you know, I hear it often in our groups, you know, I just, I'm, I just, I just want to feel some peace. I just want to feel it. And sometimes we'll rephrase it and say, well, I don't know that we can give you that, that perfect peace that you've, you are imagining or need, but maybe there's some things we can do, um, some tools that you can employ to provide yourself some comfort. And mm -hmm. not comfort in the sense of, okay, I'm going to go over here and watch television for eight hours and, right. you know, do something that's maybe not completely healthy, but something that can calm you so that you can move and recognize these emotions that you're going through. In your own grief journey, what brought you comfort? Well, the first thing is counterintuitive, but I think very helpful, which is I would ask such a person as I would ask myself, well, were you at peace with this relationship in life? Yeah. Was it always peaceful? Why would you expect it to be always peaceful in death? Yeah. It yeah. wasn't always peaceful in life. And, and death doesn't change the nature, the fundamental nature of a relationship. So if you had conflicted feelings about your husband, your wife, if sometimes you were angry with each other, if sometimes there wasn't peace in your house, which of course is true for all of us, yeah. sometimes in death, there's not going to be peace. I don't think peace is the goal, right? Uh, other than making peace with the reality right. of loss, right? Yeah. Which is different than being at peace. Yeah. Okay. I'm, my, my conflicts with my father exist in death even as they existed in his life but i've made peace with that fact mm -hmm. okay so that's that's the first thing i i would say is well let's stop expecting our relationships in death to be anything other than a true reflection of what they were in life because that's just not a realistic expectation well it's like you you talk a whole chapter about eulogies and how yes. People want it to be like a poetic uh, something. And, you know, you rarely hear Kabuki. someone's. Yeah, exactly. You rarely hear a eulogy that's like he was an SOB and, like, <laughs> you know, like well, you, you do. You have but, to say it. I, I say those things yeah. for people, but I do them deftly. Like I'll say something like it wasn't always easy yeah. to be her daughter. Mm -hmm. but, but everything she did she knew, she believed in her heart was was for her children however you want to say yeah, it yeah, which is yeah. a way of saying okay she was overbearing and she was all up in your business but only the kids understand what i'm saying everyone else is saying to themselves well yeah that that sounds right mm -hmm. <laughs> so there's a way to say it with sensitively 
while acknowledging the duality right. of relationships yeah. and the dualities that exist within each of us. Yeah. Okay, so now that's the first thing. But I can just tell you personally what's helped me when, you know, with just missing my dad so much. First of all, writing the book helped me. Yeah. I keep a picture, one of my favorite pictures of my dad uh, in my closet where I get dressed each morning. And I, I just, it was a pre Alzheimer's picture. Yeah. You know, and one of the beautiful things about memory is I'm able to remember my dad before right. he was no longer my dad, but still alive. So I keep a great picture of my dad, uh, in my, in my closet. And I, I have a moment with him every morning. Um, I pray every day. And those prayers include what we call uh, the Kaddish, the, the mm -hmm. mourner's prayer. And uh, I think of my dad when I say it. And it, by the way, the prayer itself doesn't acknowledge, doesn't contain the word death. It's not yeah. about death. It's about the greatness of life and, and the mystery that is God. And for me, that's helpful. That's a little dose of humility. And, you know, this is, this is beyond me, but you know, I love my dad. And um, I also, you know, talk about my dad yeah. a lot. And, and, my, and I talk about my dad with my, my wife, with my kids, with my tiny handful of friends who really knew him. I have four siblings and, and we, we talk about him, um, the, the good and the bad and yeah. the in-between. Um, you know, sadly, I don't talk to my mother about my father because they had such a terrible, terrible uh, marriage. And she was relieved when he, when he died. She really was. That's when she started to live. My mother started to live when my father died. And that's just the facts. Yeah. And she'll tell you that herself. So I don't really talk about my dad with my mom because she doesn't care. Yeah. Which is painful for a whole nother set of reasons, but you know, what can I do? Yeah. But I do talk about him with my siblings and my, my kids. And I will say this though, it's very interesting. I don't fully understand it yet. I, I have, uh, I have some DVDs of my dad mm -hmm. with my kids when they were little. And uh, I have a DVD of my father's funeral where I delivered the eulogy and he's been dead for four years and I can't, I can't watch them. Yeah. I just can't, I just can't watch them. And I, and you know what, that's, that's okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. it has to be because well, I can do it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> right. But, but you know, it, it's okay. I, I, I think, think still pull the scab off yeah you know yeah and i just don't want to pull the scab off so and i'll tell you something else interesting that i don't fully understand i don't recall a single dream about my father in four years which i also think is i don't know i i, I generally thought of the subconscious and dreams helping us to process and face what's too difficult to face in our conscious lives 
but I think it's too difficult for me to face even in my subconscious life, you know, that even that it's repressed, even where the repressed are set free. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I'm just accepting it because I have no choice. You can't force yourself to dream about something. Right. Um, I guess I could force myself to watch DVDs of, of my dad, but I just can't bring myself to do it. So we're all on this journey and we all have our own way and paces. And yep. I, I love looking at his picture. I just, the idea of hearing his voice and seeing him when he was younger and, and playing with my kids, it just, oh, it's just too, too painful. Well, and I think you have memories of those times too. Yeah. And we talked about memories and Sometimes the memories are, our, our brain has done a good job of editing and making it what it needs to be. And yeah. sometimes yeah. video, it's too real yeah, and, exactly. and, not, and not real yeah. at the same time. Yeah, I often say, yeah, you're right, because I, I do say to people that memory has softened my father's sharp edges. Yeah. And yeah, it's just... It's a lifelong journey. It is. It's a, it's a lifelong curriculum. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It is a lifelong right. curriculum. It's a lifelong curriculum. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, uh, I, I'm a huge Downton Abbey fan, and mm. uh, the uh, Countess always has great, uh, the Maggie Smith character always has great lines, and she always reminds people that she says something to the effect that marriage is a long business. And I said, I say grief is a long business. Lifelong. You know, yeah, lifelong. Loss. 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 Yeah, I mean. And I'll tell you, as I get older, I, I'm beginning to understand that growing older is about making peace with losing a little bit every day. Yeah. It is. Yep. Yeah. It really we shrink. Is. We shrink a little every day. <laughs> we do shrink a little bit. We do. We dry up. <laughs> We dry up. Yeah, it's just, and. Uh, but so do other things that are problematic. They shrink yes. every day in our lives too, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, our work lives, hopefully someday mine, will shrink <laughs> and, and leave more room for something else. But right. yes, I think, I think the art of growing older is the art of, I, I'm, I'm sorry to put it this way, I'm not trying to sell books, but. I think it really is the art of embracing the beauty that remains. I really do. Well, I think it is. I, th I, the re I, when I first saw your book and I saw, I didn't know what it was about. Um, cause I got some email or something and I was like, Oh, I wonder what he's writing about. I didn't know it was about grief at the time. And of course I went and I looked and I'm like, Oh, well, what does that mean? And then I started to just over the last, especially during the pandemic, Finding the beauty, finding, uh, you know, in our groups, we talk about this all the time. You know, you may have to go outside and just notice things. Yeah. Yeah. I said. And, you know, this idea of um, there's this theological term called via negationis, mm -hmm. which means by way of the negative. Yeah. And in theological circles what it means is you can understand what god is by trying to understand what god is not right right and i think this is also true for what grief and loss mm -hmm. 
of all kinds right. can do for us. It because loss definitionally is a taking away, a removing. I mean, that's what the word means. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So if you think, for example, about a and I talk about this in the book, if you think about a marble sculpture, for example, think about the most beautiful marble statue you've ever seen in your life. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Remember, it began as a solid block of marble. And that beauty was always within that block of marble, right. but it took a very skilled sculptor to remove the right things, mm -hmm. chip by chip by chip by chip, until this beautiful image remained. And I think that loss, I know. By the way, the removal of that chip probably doesn't feel great to that piece of marble if it has nerve endings. Right, right. right. Well, but humans do. Yeah, okay? humans do. Yes, I right? agree. So nevertheless, this stripping away leaves behind, at least for me, mm -hmm a very deep and beautiful appreciation for what remains mm -hmm. that I could not have achieved any other way. Yeah. yeah, without it, yeah. And that's not to say that the loss doesn't hurt. Every chip hurts. Every chip hurts. But it's also revealing something quite beautiful within. I'll take it. Yeah, I will too. Uh, Rabbi, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, I, I feel like I've taken up a lot of your time. Uh, I, I, I don't mind. I, I think this has been a beautiful conversation and I, I really, really applaud and support and believe in, in what you're doing. Thank and, you. And, uh, you know, God bless you for that. Yeah. You're a healer. Some days it it's overwhelming at times, but you are, you are too. I mean, healer, teacher, all those things. And so I want to thank you. I I know that you get lots of accolades and and thank yous, but for someone who's working with individuals in this sort of in between place when they're mm -hmm. first grieving, it's so important for them to have touchstones. And to me, the reason I got involved with faith and grief is I think our faith whatever our faith tradition provides a touchstone for us, provides yeah. some comfort um, and trying to make sense of all of this. You know, we did, you can't make sense of it. Um, and, you know, hopefully we can provide some comfort and some hope as people are going along their grief journey. Yeah. Um, yeah. We can't make it go away. And I no, and you I know, healing is not the same as curing. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And they, they get interchanged a lot. So when you talk healing, people think, well, I don't feel any better. Right. In, 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 uh, in, in Jewish prayer, we have a healing prayer. Mm. It's called the Misha Berach. And I often introduce it to the congregation first by saying, this is not a curing prayer. This is a healing prayer. This is about making peace with what cannot be cured. Mm. That's, that's healing. Right. There's a big difference. So, yeah, just keep it up. You're, the world needs you. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you so much. The Faith and Grief podcast is supported by listeners like you. If you'd like to be a podcast producer, go to faithandgrief.org slash donate and give today.